When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Commonwealth Stories speaks to people from a host of nations, from Africa to Asia, from North America to the Caribbean. You'll hear the stories and thoughts of people from all walks of life, all with one thing in common. They have all found a home in Birmingham. So what does the Commonwealth mean to us now? How has it shaped the Birmingham we know today? And what lasting legacy do we hope the games coming to the city of Birmingham will leave? The Commonwealth Stories podcast is available on all your favourite platforms. To keep up to date with the series and hear the latest episodes, make sure to follow and subscribe. Throughout this series, we've brought you the voices of Commonwealth communities around Birmingham, many of whom were uncomfortable with the ties between the British Empire and the Commonwealth of today. Thousands of Commonwealth citizens arrived in the UK with hopes for a better life and greater prosperity. This was the common wealth, a land in which the riches were to be shared commonly amongst all citizens. But for many, these promises did not materialize. Even today, opportunities are limited as a result of race and class. Ethnic minorities in our city are more likely to suffer poor health. Their children are likely to get worse grades at school. And many still live in the most deprived areas of our city. In this episode, we'll be asking, how common is the wealth in the Commonwealth? And what does this mean for the coming of the Games? You'll hear from social justice campaigner Desmond Jadu. And if we even look at the Commonwealth Games, I mean, that's why I likened it to the Plantation Games. Why did we have to make noises about the structure of the organising committee for them to bring about changes? Local jazz artist and history graduate Soweto Kinch. You know, that somehow it's just enough to say the title Commonwealth while there's such huge disparities in wealth and opportunity across it. Canadian-born Tara Hurst, a lecturer in biomedical sciences at Birmingham City University. Where you have the Commonwealth, you do think it would be a League of Nations working together. It's not evident to me that that's been the case. And refugee and migrant legal representative Salman Mirza. There's that real contradiction of, yeah, let's celebrate the Commonwealth, but let's condemn Commonwealth citizens already here in Birmingham. This is Commonwealth Stories by Birmingham Life. Desmond Jadu is a former British City Council housing officer and inspirational speaker. Desmond spoke to reporter Nathan Clark via a web call from his home in Spanish Town, Jamaica. We asked Desmond for his thoughts on the enduring legacy of the British Empire and whether Birmingham, a city which prides itself on its diversity, can be considered a racially inclusive city. You were born in Birmingham, but whereabouts were your parents from? My parents are both from Jamaica. I'm of Jamaican Indian heritage because my father's father, my grandfather, hence the name Jadu, he was actually an Indian migrant. So he moved to Jamaica in about 1890 or so. So with Jamaica and India both being part of the Commonwealth, did you ever think of yourself as a, as a, as a child of the Commonwealth at all? Growing up, the Commonwealth didn't mean much. I mean, we grow up understanding the more the concept 
my parents made sure that we understood the concept of empire and colonialism more than anything else because the way in which they spoke about um, Jamaica being under the flag, as it were, under the Union Jack. And, for example, my father, the last job he had before he came to England, he worked for Jamaica on the most service, driving a bus. And that was actually owned by Midland Red. So there's the connections, you see, um, with the United Kingdom. But it was more about the United Kingdom being the mother nation more than anything else. And when did your parents come to Birmingham? Well, my mother uh, moved to the UK in 1960, and um, my father followed shortly in 1961. And your family, obviously one of thousands of people from the Commonwealth who eventually chose to move to the UK, and Birmingham in particular. Yeah. What was the experience of Commonwealth families been like? For instance, what was it like for your, for your parents when they first came? It, 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 there were elements of hostility because, I mean, apart from having to put up with you know, thinking houses were factories because, you know, smoke coming out the chimneys, etc. Accommodation was difficult. My mother was lucky enough because her two brothers, two of her brothers already moved to the UK and they had accommodation. And when my father came, he came and he joined my mother. But clearly the concept of no blacks, no Irish, no dogs was very, very prevalent. My mother talked about because she had a beautiful head of hair and still has. And they said that um, they considered, you know, people wanted to pat her hair or what lovely hair. So at times you felt as though you were on display in a zoo or something like that, in all honesty. You know, when you were seen different and that was the thing. And, you know, the whole idea of how um, particularly people of course, black people were dealt with is... It wasn't as welcoming as they thought it would be because obviously they're coming to what they call their motherland, their mother country. And clearly this wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't in terms of the welcome that they had. Yeah, this, this idea of the, of the mother country is quite interesting. Do, do you think Britain ever, ever felt like that for your family? I think from afar, the expectation, yes. When it came to reality, when they're arriving in the UK, the answer is no. It's as though they were seen as a foreigner on crown soil, for which really, at that time when she arrived in the UK, it was as Jamaica was as much crown soil as the United Kingdom was. But they were still made to feel as though they're immigrants. Mm, mm, yeah, this like this idea about being an outsider, and, and you, you talked briefly there about your family's experience with racism when they first came. Do you think that that's changed at all? I'm born in the UK. I was born at Heathfield Road Maternity Hospital in Handsworth. But I get asked, where am I from? That's the answer to your question. What is it to be British? How on earth can someone come and ask me? someone born in a great city like Birmingham with a so-called super diverse status. And people ask me, where am I from? Now, racism itself has become very sophisticated, but in recent years, particularly since Brexit, it has now become blatant again, as it was during the 50s, 60s, 70s. One of the big issues is, is that, you know, the fact that we have never been accepted as being British 
And Birmingham, of course, is a city which, you know, prides itself on being so diverse. Is enough being done to support those diverse communities to allow them to live, you know, comfortable and, and safe lives? I don't believe that Birmingham has ever embraced its diversity. I believe that Birmingham is very patronising as a city. Some people believe you must celebrate diversity. Celebrating diversity, going to the Baldy Triangle on a Friday night, having a curry or going to a carnival, having, I don't know, jerk chicken, jerk pork, rice and peas. You know, we believe, then you believe that you are being diverse. The answer to that question is no. Birmingham lacks reflective governance. The issue of race and the fact that, you know, we've got these glass ceilings and employment, you know, we've got local authority services at the lower scale, it may reflect the community, but at decision-making tables, it does not reflect the great community of Birmingham. That tells you where, how seriously that they take this whole concept of diversity. It's great for Birmingham. It's great to attract money from central government. But when push comes to shove, what is it? It's just not there. And if we even look at the Commonwealth Games, I mean, that's why I likened it to the Plantation Games, because when you looked at the initial structure of the organising committee, let me ask you this. Why did we have to make noises about the structure of the organising committee for them to bring about changes? Why didn't it just happen? Why was it not more reflective than it was initially? I mean, we shouldn't be talking about embracing diversity or making things more reflective. That should happen as a normal part of the course. Unfortunately, that is not the case. And that tells me that up to today, 2022, Birmingham has yet failed to embrace its diversity. I'd like to focus a little bit on on the actual word commonwealth, you know, the idea that all wealth should be held uh, by the people in, in common. In, in your opinion, does that happen or has it ever happened? No, it's never happened because, unfortunately, remember, if we look at the Commonwealth, the Commonwealth is based on empire. Empire is based on colonialism. Colonialism is based on slavery. And we know the skin colour of the people who held the wealth. It weren't black people, weren't the Asian people. It was actually held by the white people. So what it tells me is, is that the Commonwealth is about the superiority of the people who are white over the others. And that concept has to be broken. I mean, to be perfectly honest, why are we having this conversation in 2022? Clearly, this is not, is this not a relevant conversation that would have been taking place potentially in the 1950s, maybe even the 1940s, maybe, hey, 1850. You just don't know, do you? But some of the things we're talking about today could be, you know, questions in a conversation that was happening in 1850. So what does that tell you? We're talking about progression here, understanding and having that sense of belonging. And the key question is, what has really changed to ensure that everyone's on an equal and fair footing. And if we talk about commonwealth, meaning that the wealth is there for everyone and it's shared out equally, then why have we got so much poverty? Why have we got people living way below the scales of others? Why is it that reparations have not taken place? The past indiscretions have never 
being addressed. And if we look at the Caribbean tour recently, which Prince William undertook, um, he felt short of apologizing. He said slavery was abhorrent. It was unacceptable, but he didn't say, I'm sorry. You know, so where's that healing going to be? And still there is this emphasis on Commonwealth, but one must look at the historic implications of Commonwealth. And ultimately it's based on slavery and it's based on particularly black people, you know, being exploited, ultimately being killed for standing up for their rights. So for the Commonwealth really to move forward, I think what has to happen as a body, the Commonwealth has really, and particularly the monarchy, has got to wake up to the fact that these passing discretions were committed and they need to be addressed. What do you then think of when you hear the Commonwealth Games coming to Birmingham? Is it something to be celebrated or, or what, what is it? What do you think? The Commonwealth Games coming to Birmingham was an opportunity to start changing the narrative. But unfortunately, they started off on the wrong foot and they're playing catch up. And it's not, it, look, the bottom line is the Commonwealth Games are just going to be games that come into our great city and they leave our great city. And we'll probably say in history, well, Birmingham was a venue for it. Instead of embracing the issues of the Commonwealth. Now, what we've got to remember is this, okay? We've got Brexit, where the issue of racism has reared its head again. We've had Windrush. Windrush is very significant because Windrush is about the Commonwealth. We've had people die being threatened. We've lost their livelihoods, being threatened with deportation who arrived in the UK when the the country they came from were colonies, for example. But what we have here, we had an opportunity to bring some healing, have those difficult conversations and use it as a tool to move forward and create that greater understanding for our youngsters in terms of where they're coming from. Is it too late for those conversations, do you think, Desmond? It's not as though they went into this blindfolded and it's not as though they didn't, they weren't aware that these issues existed. We've had the issue of George Floyd as well in between and the, the, mer- the larger emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement as well. And we've had the recent racial, racial, racial killing of D. John Reed in Birmingham, irrespective of what the verdict was, race played a part in that. The point is, is it too late? It's never too late, but it's going to be too late to make a difference with these games. As a part of legacy, if they want conversations to take place, then that could, may well be the case. I mean, I've been talking to the human, the Commonwealth Foundation, who are quite keen to advance this whole conversation, particularly, you know, surrounding Windrush as well. So is it too late? It's not. But it would have been really useful if this conversation started three years ago. We could have developed greater understanding of what the issues are. What kind of legacy would you like to see the games leave on Birmingham as a as a city? Like, what are the hopes for the next sort of few years? Nathan, what I wanted was for Birmingham to have a greater understanding of its diversity, of the importance of people from the Commonwealth countries, the people from the Caribbean, the people from Asia, which makes up a lot of Birmingham's population, to understand what their contribution is to not just to the empire, 
but also to Great Britain, Birmingham, even in the rebuilding of Birmingham, post-war Birmingham, post-war Britain, for our young people to understand the journey of their parents, for them to understand they didn't fall out of the sky and landed in Birmingham, for them to understand there was a journey, for them to understand that their parents and their grandparents and great-grandparents were actually British and that they feel at home in Birmingham. They don't feel like an alienated stranger. That's what you call legacy because that's tangible. Legacy isn't about having a building named after someone or a statue to say the games were held here. If we can just improve and make a difference to people's lives, then that's the greatest legacy we can have. And just for our children, our children from the Black, African, Caribbean, Asian community, and the much wider parts of Africa, to include your Somali, Sudanese, Sudan, etc., for them to feel for them to understand where they fit into the jigsaw. And that's the thing. And have that greater sense of belonging. And importantly as well, for people to stop asking people like me, where are you from? To understand that, you know, you can be black and you can be from Birmingham. I mean, I, I, my parents came from Jamaica. I was born in Birmingham. My children born in Birmingham. I have people asking my children where they're from. I mean, the best one was the other day, my, someone asked my son, where you're from? He said, well, I think, I'm sure my mum said I was born at Queen Elizabeth um, Women's Hospital, Birmingham Women's Hospital in the end, he said. Yeah, that's where I'm from, mate, Birmingham Women's Hospital. And that shut them up. You know, a, a place like Birmingham with super diversity, we should not be asking people who are not white where you're from. And that's the thing. And that, to me, would be a great legacy. But importantly, at a time as well, when our children are killing each other, for them to understand the journey. Because if they understand the journey, Nathan, they probably would think twice before killing each other. To Desmond Jadu, Commonwealth citizens who migrated to Birmingham have never truly been considered British. Many still live in poverty and face barriers in all aspects of their lives. He feels they will continue to do so until structural reforms are made to make Birmingham more racially equal. And until then, Commonwealth migrants will continue to feel segregated from the rest of our city. One person who has seen this segregation firsthand is Soweto Kinch, a Birmingham-based award-winning jazz musician. Having grown up in Handsworth, Kinch began playing the saxophone at nine years old. He has since amassed an impressive list of accolades including a Mercury Music Prize nomination and a MOBO Award for Best Jazz Act in 2003. In 2006, Kinch released A Life in the Day of B19, Tales of the Tower Block, a concept album which documents the lives of three inner-city Birmingham men. Nathan Clark joined Kinch in his recording studio. He shared that he wanted the album to be an honest reflection of what it was like for migrants building a life in Birmingham. We also asked him his thoughts on the Commonwealth and the upcoming games. Could we just sort of take a trip down memory lane? You were born in London, but when did you move to Birmingham? I moved when I was young. I was nine years old when we moved from London to Birmingham. And yeah, most of my growing, most of my identity, I guess, was formed here in Brum. And uh, your family, where, where are they from? My parents, uh, well, my mum was born in London, but Jamaican mother, so it's that half. And then my father's from Barbados, so West Indian parents. I guess with both of them, quite a British upbringing at the same time. So Barbados is not a member of the Commonwealth anymore, is it? But growing up, did you ever think of yourself as a child of the Commonwealth at all? 
I never really identified as a child of the Commonwealth. Uh, I did identify with the other countries that were part of the Commonwealth and think that there are bonds, but not necessarily that those bonds are monarchical or Im imperial ones. What sort of bonds? Well, you have a shared history through cricket. You know, as a kid in the 80s, we'd grow up supporting India and Pakistan, even though I have no direct connections to those countries. But the history and politicization of cricket, as much as it was in the 80s, meant that we were encouraged to to form alliances and see where there are similarities across national borders, even with those Commonwealth uh, histories in place. Could you tell me a bit about your upbringing in Handsworth? What was it like as an area back then? Hugely significant growing up in Handsworth for a sense of who I am and purpose and and what culture can impart to us. So I grew up, as I've mentioned, in an, in an era where we were all playing cricket on the same street. Gujarati kids, Pakistani kids, Bangladeshi kids, West Indian kids, West African kids. And particularly in Handsworth, you know, as a strong sort of North Indian population as well as a really powerful Jamaican presence. You know, you have to look at someone like Apache Indian to look at how that hybrid culture has produced very different people, you know, but a real sense of a specific identity that comes out of Handsworth. And when did you first get involved in music? I first got involved, the first thing we discovered the saxophone, right, in Handsworth at a place called the Cultural Centre. I was always aware of the power of music and art to transform perception. I grew up in an artistic household. My father's a playwright. My mother was an actress. There were always musicians, poets, visual artists around in the house growing up. So that was one of those, you know, strands in terms of me becoming myself and so forth. But it wasn't until I, I went to actual places to encounter music being taught and played, like the Cultural Centre in Handsworth, or even I'm thinking of intellectual places like Harriet Tubman's bookshop in, in Grove Lane that I could connect ideas around the diaspora, around kindred spirits, and find like-minded artists that I wanted to, to practice with. And how did music develop from uh, sort of something like a hobby into a career, something that would eventually see you win awards? Uh, that was quite a zigzaggy, um, not necessarily assured path, you know? Um, and I think that's one of the things I've been very aware of continuing as a jazz musician, that the pathways to becoming a jazz musician aren't particularly clear or secure. <laughs> that's one thing that we do know, like musicians' lives are pretty precarious, etc. Um, but I was playing music, really, really enjoying it, and concerned as like whether I should study that at university or not. My father and a few others just really encouraged me to take my academic studies as far as they, they would go. And I guess it's one of the strange peculiarities of our education system that it forces us down specialised roads. You know, it's a, a culture that's obsessed with taxonomy and taxonomy and categorising people in particular ways. So therefore, by the age of 18, you're like, well, I can't be a musician and a historian. I have to be a geographer or a lawyer, <laughs> even if you might have both interests at, at heart. Um, so I went off to study history, but always continued my passion and love of, of music, and performing music. Can I ask you a bit about your second album, uh, A Life in a Day of B-19, Tales of the Tower Block? It's a concept album documenting the lives of three men from inner city Birmingham. Um, firstly, what inspired you to choose this as a topic? Great question. Um, I think the reason I chose to focus it on three ordinary Brummies was because it was a time I'd step out of Norfolk Tower, which is no longer there, but just around the corner, a council flat that I lived in for 10 years. And there were huge get rich or die trying posters, 50 cents and lots of urban gangster 
fairy tale films were coming out all at the same time. And it seemed a very deliberate, conscious push to make the word black coterminous with gang and vice versa. Growing up in this in this city and in that specific area of Hockley that, that I lived, I was aware there was a jazz musician in my block, poets in my block. Recently, as the song rides on that album kind of paints, it that's exactly what it was. Yeah, there was drug dealers, but there's also Somali refugee family and a Botswanan family on the ground floor and a few Irish, a uh, few, you know, wreckheads on the first floor. It's, it's a diversity of experience. And in fact, the similarities vastly outweighed the differences. What I found troubling was the number of albums and cultural things that sort of glorified this rags to riches American story of gangsterism. I wanted to create something that was specific to Birmingham and authentic. You know, if everyone was busy selling crack, there wouldn't be enough crack to go around. What about the bus driver? What about the musicians? What about the kid just trying to get A-levels or GCSEs? And that was very much the, uh, the reason for the tenure of the album and the three people that I focused on. So the message was sort of one of don't discriminate, don't compartmentalise this group of people and sort of explore the... The richness. I think you could extrapolate that message. But at the time, I was just like, let's be honest. I'm talking about in a job centre with a, a woman behind the benefit, behind the office, behind the desk who's like, what do you mean, jazz musician? Like, what are you on about? That can't be your career. Who hasn't experienced in this city having vaulting ambition and driving ideas and being brought down to earth by a conversation in Sturchley or Board's Degree? And it's like, hang on. Your delusions of grandeur don't work here in the city. Those are things that we actually can all identify with. And I, I thought being as specific about my own story, some of those are really autobiographical, would be as universal as possible in its application. We have a tendency to want to reach for ghetto fabulous stories or versions of rags to riches success because we've seen it work in Atlanta or New York or something. My thing has always been just be honest, be, be authentic. How would you describe your own personal relationship with Birmingham as a city? You seem quite sort of proud, especially of the city's culture. I'm incredibly proud of Birmingham's culture, but also very aware that a number of British cities, Birmingham included, have this quite tense relationship between the diversity that we advertise and the stratification and segregation that we kind of keep hidden. You know, Alan Rock is what it is, Hansworth is what it is. Go and look at house prices in Kings Heath, Kings Norton, and just it suggests that white flight and inability to cohabit in these spaces is still very much a problem that we're tackling in the city, as well as gentrification. I never thought I'd say it. You know, my mum lives in Brixton. I've got lots of friends in London, and the rate of change in gentrification is really obvious. I've always prided myself living in Birmingham in a city that doesn't really feel like a place that can be gentrified. You know, but actually, no. <laughs> of course, the marketplace does what it does. People, old communities get moved on. And who knows if we retain that authenticity and that warmth that I think we're known for as a city. Moving on to sort of history side of things, what comes to mind when you hear the word Commonwealth? It sounds great uh, as a kid, without knowing the, the decent, the, the, the history in much detail. You're like, wealth in common. What, what could be wrong about that? And then I realized it used to be called the Empire and Commonwealth Games. And so it's very overtly connected to the idea of Britain's empire or former colonies. And in that context, the idea of Commonwealth feels like a bit of semantics and a bit of hijinks. You know, the wealth is common, but yet those countries aren't equally wealthy. It's not distributed in equal terms. 
Um, and you only have to look at inequalities of opportunity, visa restrictions, for the fact that our capital has always been able to flee those countries, be it Jamaica, which is still part of the Commonwealth, uh, all these countries. But people can't move. You try being Indian and try and come to Britain really easily, or Kenyan or Nigerian. Um, so your money's allowed to be common, but you're not considered a common human. And that's, uh, that's problematic. So with that in mind, what do you make of the Commonwealth Games? Is it a form of like the term sport washing? Is that fair to say? Or I think it's an important question, an important moment to consider, reflect on the history of the Commonwealth Games. On the one hand, I have complex feelings towards it. On the one hand, I'm all for it. I remember just seeing athletes like Chris Akapusi as a kid and watching the Commonwealth Games um, and it being a, an essential form of competition for young athletes to get into and something to be proud of. Uh, Birmingham being in a repository of great athletics talent and stuff, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of that. So I want it to go ahead. On the other hand, I think that history needs to be engaged with. It can't be something that you sort of sweep under the rug and go, oh, well, that was a long time ago. It's just a bit of fun. No, because those inequalities and those, you know, asymmetries of power just end up being replicated in the future. They just end up being repeated. Um, I was sharing to you just before we started recording the sort of, for want of a better term, racial microaggressions that I was suffering at a post office today. And there's been tensions between Asian black communities Irish and black communities, Irish and Asian communities, it seems that we still struggle as a city to deal with that history where different subsequent arrivals, subsequent migrants have arranged themselves in relation to power, in relation to empire. I remember having a really fascinating conversation with a Jamaican lady on, on Harborn High Street where she was saying, I'm not like Labour Party. I'm going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn at the next... No, I'm not going to vote for him. I'm going to vote for Nigel Farage at the next election because, quote-unquote, he speaks for, to her people. He, you know, he's for our people, her exact words. Man, I didn't quite understand what, she, understand what she meant. But if you've arrived as an immigrant in the 50s and then you've seen waves of Eastern European migration, Ugandan, Asian immigration, you're like, well, why shouldn't they get the feces through the letterbox that I had? Why shouldn't they have to endure the abuse, the hardship, the poor pay, the daily abuses that I had to put up with? And there's a real strong kick the ladder down, you know, attitude. Unless we start having these really open conversations about how third-generation Irish people whose grandparents had the same signs up in the doors, no dogs, no Irish, no blacks, have just sort of camouflaged and forgotten that past and just become your average white brummy, you know, until we're prepared to have some quite awkward conversations, I think problems will sadly keep recurring. Do you think those open conversations are likely to happen? I think they're going to have to happen. They're not going to be encouraged necessarily by those who like to just hide behind platitudes or nice easy things. With the multiracial, diverse city, they don't want to sort of interrogate those those slogans much. But I don't think it's we're not going to be able to last much more as a city that doesn't, you know. And I think we are getting increasingly better. Younger generations are getting increasingly better at forcing issues into popular conversation be that the climate change marches I saw around the city, kids just, like, were taking the day off school to push this stuff to the top of the news agenda, right down to people talking genuinely about race, homophobia, transphobia, in new and exciting ways, I think, in this city. Are you personally excited by the coming of the Commonwealth Games to Birmingham? See, yeah, as I mentioned, I am. I am excited in both terms. Actually, I'm excited to see the Games just happening here. 
but also for those uncomfortable conversations that will have to happen um, by virtue of it being here, by virtue of some of the spectacles and, and so forth. I think people will ask who's included by it and who's excluded by it. What are the things that we can be proud of in the Commonwealth, namely the talent and the energy of the former empire? What are the things that we can kind of jettison? The idea that just royal approval is enough or, you know, that somehow it's just enough to say the title Commonwealth while there's such huge disparities in wealth and opportunity across it. Finally, what impact would you like to see the Commonwealth Games have on Birmingham as a city? Easy to say legacy, but that's a, that's a huge one. You know, we'd like to see very practically how the sports and athletics legacy from the Games will, will continue to provide opportunities for people. But how can the conversation that's undoubtedly been started now um, continue? I was actually, you know, quite interested in getting involved in the opening ceremonies and doing some stuff just before COVID happened. Um, and then a few conversations with another Birmingham luminary, Kehinde Andrews, who pointed out to me about the Empire and Commonwealth Games, made me think, no, the conversation is invariably going to be opened by their presence here and we're going to have to discuss and consider how does, as you mentioned, sports washing um, enable us to fast forward an important stage of understanding what empire is about, who are the winners and losers, and what are the legacies of empire. For Soweto, there is still a great deal of inequality rooted in the Commonwealth. Inequality which can still be seen on the streets of our city. But inequalities within the Commonwealth don't just exist in Birmingham. They can be seen across borders, and in some cases, can be a matter of life and death. Tara Hurst is a biomedical scientist at Birmingham City University. She spoke to our reporter Anissa Vasta at BCU about the inequalities in healthcare we've seen within the Commonwealth during the pandemic. And what has your experience been of uh, the city of Birmingham? It's hard to explain. I, I think it's a, a hard city to get to know at first. Um, at first, it seems like a, a big city and um, I hate to put it this way, but like a lot of cars, a lot of a lot of movement and, and things. But then after a while, you start to realize that there are communities and you start to get to know people. I've recently moved to a different part of the city and actually really do feel like it's almost like a village even though it's in this quite a big city. Um, one of the things I like about Birmingham is it seems like very diverse. I've lived in other parts of the UK that don't seem to have that diversity. And I think Birmingham has, it's, it's actually quite quite an interesting city in that way that it's got so many influences from all over, all over the world from what I've been able to see so far. It's safe to say it's been quite a crazy couple of years um, in terms of the pandemic. What has the pandemic exposed about the Commonwealth? I mean, I think that this might not be a popular opinion, um, but I think it is accurate that I do think that countries became quite insular quite quickly. And I, I don't think that this is only the Commonwealth, but where you have the Commonwealth, you do think it would be a League of Nations working together. It's not evident to me that that's been the case, for example, um, in terms of distribution of the vaccines to uh, other members of the Commonwealth. I mean, Britain to date has, uh, I think, done fairly well at rolling out vaccines and even getting the booster shot campaign, reaching out to quite a lot of people. Um, I think that's been amazing here in, in the UK, but has that translated into helping Commonwealth members around the world? I don't think that's necessarily true, but then not every Commonwealth country would say need that help. I, I think that for a good example would be Canada, where I'm from. It's a 
a fairly well-off nation and it, you know, invested quite heavily and has done also quite a good job of rolling out vaccine coverage across the country. I think that one of the things with the Commonwealth is it does seem like there's quite um, a range of economies and lifestyles that spans that. So it's not it's not easy to generalize about it, but it does seem to me that perhaps some of the more well-to-do countries that are part of the Commonwealth could have maybe, bearing in mind that they are part of this organization, reached out to, to make sure that vaccine coverage was more widespread, but not even just vaccine coverage, other elements of controlling the pandemic. There's been, obviously, we were very fortunate that the vaccine development programs were as as excellent as they were and as as rapid as they were. And that's not a, a, a bad thing. I think that there's a, a this general idea that because it was fast, it was it was bad. It's it's quite the converse. I'm happy to discuss that further, but just to, to set that aside. But I think aside from the vaccines and the development of antivirals, there's also all the societal and behavioral and also things like PPE and sanitizer and whatnot that people needed and just control of how we were going to manage the situation. It didn't feel like people really, you know, made use of, of the WHO or being part of the Commonwealth or any of these organizations, these international bodies, to make it a concerted effort. Um, it feel, felt very, it has, to my mind, continued to be very divisive and very different from one country to the next. So I find that quite interesting, actually. It seems like as soon as, a, a, for example, a new variant is detected, even in a Commonwealth country, it's not like the Commonwealth members come together to um, say, okay, well, what are we going to do to manage this, guys? Instead, they seem to all lock their borders down, you know, which, you know, as a virologist, it's, um, the only way I can explain it is by analogy, which is, you know, that phrase, um, locking the barn door after the horse has already bolted, you know. And once, once the variant has been de- detected, it's most likely already very widespread. And it just strikes me as funny that instead of having a concerted effort to to deal with the pandemic, it's very geographical, very um, country by country. And, and so therefore, I think that limits the ability to respond effectively. And I think that that's definitely contributed to the way the pandemic has has gone over the two years. But. Obviously, with the Commonwealth Games coming up now, the the, the way that it's being managed uh, safely, obviously, it's this year because of COVID and and trying to trying to do that in a safe manner. Because obviously, if there's an influx of large amount of people coming to to the city, you know, the way that you manage those those things are, is a diff, is a conversation that I'm sure is being being had. One of the concerns that I have is that potentially by the time the games are here, you know, the UK will be restrictions will be such a distant memory. But the thing is, is that I think that what has been demonstrated through the pandemic is that when they do hold large events, COP22 um, or 21 in Glasgow was an example of that. After that, there was clear evidence from the public health measures that there was a spread due to that event. Other events, even just small personal gatherings um, to larger government events or or, um, entertainment events have been linked to you know, increases in cases, even even as simple as attending university. So we're at a university. Um, there's public health data linking attendance at university with testing positive for COVID. And, and what concerns me is that we've reached or passed even pandemic fatigue at this stage that we're talking now. And I just think that, you know, people don't want to follow the restrictions anymore. So I do have concerns how will a, a large event with so many athletes from all over the Commonwealth coming to Birmingham, how will that be managed safely? And are we not just um, potentially putting a lot of people at risk? You know, uh, 
perhaps I'm a little bit erring a little bit on the the um, paranoid side. I don't know, but I do have concerns that maybe it's not a good idea to hold it until we're a bit further further um, away from the the worst of the pandemic. So obviously, at the beginning of the the first lockdown, there was many conversations that were had. The death rates amongst uh, Black and Asian communities was far higher than they'd ever seen before. At the time, you know, my 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 grandma was scared. You know, I'm, my next door neighbor was scared, um, and all my Black friends, you know, they, they they were quite scared for their grandparents. So from that time, what do you think? What what have we learned from that moment? And I know that there was very early on in the pandemic, in the fir- during the first lockdown, aside from age being strongly linked with um, severe disease and, and mortality due to COVID, so was um, ethnicity, such as um, people who are from Black or Asian uh, ethnic backgrounds. What I'm not clear on is, is it has that borne out over the, the rest of the pandemic. As a scientist, you don't like to generalize from limited data. And I think that one of the things with the pandemic that has um, emerged for me is that a lot of the data all feels very preliminary. We're still in the middle of it. And it feels like that there's still a need for a reckoning of the data. And is there a clear link with being from a particular ethnic background? The institution of the Commonwealth is a historic institution. You know, obviously it's from the British Empire. What value does it have in the future, obviously going through the pandemic? From the impression, obviously, from a lot of people is that it's a very face value sort of institution now where obviously there's a lot of protocols being followed, but we don't know how how much impact they actually have on on Commonwealth countries. So what do you think the future is of of an institution like the, the Commonwealth? You know, history has shown that these things do shift in importance and stuff over time. I mean, I think that the, the emergence of the Commonwealth out of the, the British Empire was possibly in my very optimistic, naturally optimistic worldview, a great thing. You know, it, I think that coming out of the, the world wars and, you know, that early turbulent period of the 20th century, trying to build a better world, the empire had to had to recede. I mean, that empire building, that empire mentality clearly had so many flaws and, and you know, issues, um, certainly inherent racism and things like that. And I think that moving to the idea of the Commonwealth is very optimistic and it's it's got a, a wonderful, um, you know, theory behind it of, of trying to bridge these communities um, that do have a common element like within their, their background of having been part of the British Empire and what that means still to this day in those countries. Um, I don't know about every country in the Commonwealth, but I can certainly speak to a place like Canada, you know, growing up in Western Canada and some remote regions and, you know, having uh, an English grandmother of all of all things, you know, going to their house and seeing all these marks of, of Britain. And we're in far northern um, Alberta and like a very remote part of the country. You know, it just seemed like even though we were in this remote country, we still had these strong links to, to Britain and, and that maybe being part of the Commonwealth is where I kind of, you know, think that this this institution has merit is that it kind of bridges that huge geographical divide. It basically can help to bring people together. So I think it has a future in that sense, but it needs to be used as such, if you get me. Whereas I think that what the pandemic has shown is that it, it doesn't seem like that the Commonwealth has been accessed as like a way, as a resource, as a way to work together to fight a common foe. 
I think that where you also have a commonwealth and with it covering so many nations of the world, there was, a, I think, a missed opportunity. But maybe going forward, that's a lesson to be learned and that, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, get rid of the institution. I would say let's turn it into something that kind of grows from that optimistic worldview of like trying to work together that, you know, that that it developed into, you know, or that it was developed to try to to do, to take the British Empire forward as a more uh, equitable organization. While Tara acknowledges the inequalities at the heart of the vaccine rollout throughout the pandemic, she retains faith that the Commonwealth can play a crucial role in addressing future international issues collectively. This view is not shared by our next guest, refugee and migrant legal representative, Salman Mirza. Salman has been helping migrants from across the world settle in the UK, giving them the help and support they need to navigate our intricate and at times puzzling immigration system. In Salman's eyes, we can't celebrate the Commonwealth Games without first addressing the issues facing Commonwealth citizens in the UK today. He spoke to our reporter Nathan Clark at Sarty House in Aston. Firstly, the Commonwealth Games coming to Birmingham uh, July. Are you excited about it? Um, not really. I mean, the Commonwealth Games seems a bit of a, you know, bread and circuses kind of thing, uh, especially when I think about the other Commonwealth citizens living in the Midlands in like dire poverty and uh, having to try to sort out their visas in the UK, spending thousands and thousands of pounds uh, in that process in order to stay in the UK. So there's that real contradiction of, yeah, let's celebrate the Commonwealth, but let's condemn Commonwealth citizens already here in Birmingham. Are there any people that come to mind with regards to that? I mean, I'm involved with two campaigns at the moment. Uh, Lewin Williams, old Jamaican guy, been here for over 18 years. He's got cancer. Doctors are saying he's only got a year to live if he goes back to Jamaica. The Home Office are saying, we don't care, goodbye. And he's a Commonwealth citizen. I've got another woman, Gurmit Kaur. She works in a temple, volunteers in a temple. They've got this thing called Langa, which seeks, they give out food. So it was, in a sense, it was the original food banks. And they've actually said, because you worked in that food bank, you're fit and healthy enough to go back to India. So she's being punished for helping people, and she's a Commonwealth citizen. So... I'm very disappointed with these two decisions and I want to, you know, fight along with thousands of others to make sure they stay. The Commonwealth Games, is it fair to call it like sports washing, holding this big international sporting event while ignoring these, the, the, the plight of the citizens from the Commonwealth countries in places well, like I mean, Birmingham? I, I, as a taxpayer, I've paid thousands of pounds for the Commonwealth Games. I'll... My ho- I coach wrestling, my hobby's wrestling. I wanted to watch some of the wrestling. £35 a ticket. So I'm thinking, well, that's going to exclude a lot of people wanting to get involved with sports. I think that's unacceptable. What's going to be the legacy? Is it going to be, are we going to have free access to leisure centres and swimming pools after the Commonwealth Games gone? No, we won't. We'll have to pay for it. So there is no legacy. This is entertainment for people who've got money and misery for people who haven't. Do you see it bringing any benefits at all to Birmingham and its communities? I mean, people are going to come and visit Birmingham, people are going to go to coffee shops, people are going to eat out in Birmingham. So in a sense, for small businesses, yeah, there's going to be some revenue for them. And that's, you know, that's a good thing for Birmingham, that's a good thing for small businesses. But on the whole, you know, I just think it's, again, it's what, what, you know, it's very empty, It's, it's built on sand. How can we make sure that the Games has a lasting impact on Birmingham or do you think it just won't at all? I mean, if we talk about the legacy of the Commonwealth, you know, the good things and the bad things, and we have that debate, then I think, yeah, I mean, 
that's what history's about. I mean, in a sense, in Bristol, they pulled down the slave owner statue. You know, that, that is all part of the Commonwealth discussion. Are we going to have that discussion during this Commonwealth game, Games? Are we? I'm not sure we are. I think it's going to be a very kind of insipid, you know, cuddly affair where, you know, there is no real debate being had about the legacy of the British Empire and the Commonwealth. And finally, the Commonwealth to you, sort of being uh, Pakistani, do you have any relevance at all or...? No, not, not at all, you know. No, no, like I said before, I think the Commonwealth is very much like bread and circuses and it is for people who've got money to watch people jump about and run fast. That's pretty much it. To Salman, the Commonwealth means nothing if it doesn't support its own. People like Jamaican-born Lewin Williams who he mentioned there in his interview with Nathan. 74-year-old Lewin has been living in the UK for nearly 20 years, but is facing an uncertain future. Lewin, a cancer patient, fears the Home Office will send him back to Jamaica, where he has no family and cannot afford medical treatment. His story highlights the struggle many Commonwealth citizens still face in trying to build a life here in Birmingham. For many Brummies, the immense wealth which Britain acquired from its empire has yet to be shared with those from whom it was taken, the people of the Commonwealth. Research has shown that ethnic minorities in Birmingham are still far more likely to be living in deprivation, and many Commonwealth citizens, welcomed here as part of the Windrush generation, still live in fear that one day they too will be told they are no longer welcome in the country they call home. So what does this mean for the Commonwealth Games? Is it something we should be celebrating? Is it, as some have argued, a form of sports washing designed to ignore the important conversations around equality which need to be had? Or can we use the Games as a platform to start finally having these difficult conversations? And if so, how? In the next and final episode of the Commonwealth Stories podcast, we'll be asking just that and trying to understand how we can use the Games to bring about a better society for everyone. Commonwealth Stories is a laudable production, brought to you by Birmingham Live. The Commonwealth Stories podcast is available on all your favourite platforms. To keep up to date with the series and hear the latest episodes, make sure to follow and subscribe. To find out more about the upcoming Commonwealth Games, and to discover more about the guests who are featured on this episode, make sure to head over to the Birmingham Live website. This is Commonwealth Stories by Birmingham Live. Live.